0: Dear Miss Pride, it has come to my attention that you have a mutant power, the ability to walk through solid matter. I believe you call it phasing. Uh, hello? Is anyone here? Searching my past, the things that I've seen. Is it my life or just something I dream? Resume. Noun. One a summing up summary two a brief written account of personal educational and professional qualifications and experience before we get started on january of 1983 i tried to make the previous episode of comic reader resume as comprehensive as possible but i unfortunately repeated a mistake from the blog incarnation of this feature in overlooking a december 1982 purchase this one picked up at jimco I'd so enjoyed my sampling of the Brave and the Bold that I suspect I went looking for more value for the dollar team-up action that month. The first strikeout was the DC Comics Presents with Airwave, and the second was World's Finest Comics number 289, suckered by a swell Gil Kane cover. I bought the Superman/Batman team-up titled The Krill Way of Dying by Doug Minch and Adrian Gonzalez. It started promisingly enough with the Dark Knight violating some civil rights with vigilante brutality boots to the head that kind of looked like Jim Aparo if you'd just gotten your eyes dilated under direct sunlight at midday and a cloudless sky in Texas. The Cape Crusader fails to save a life or apprehend the killers and is left screaming on his knees to the heavens as he flashed back to that fateful night in Crime Alley. Or as Batman calls it, a quiet Tuesday evening. That was followed by some Superman brooding about the destruction of his homeworld. Then the man of tomorrow showed up in the Bat Cave, having sensed their shared pain, and whisked the Batman to the Fortress of Solitude, as both men confided that they didn't want to be alone this night. Just don't tell Lois. Seriously, all that manufactured macho antagonism post-crisis was about more exciting character dynamics, and had nothing to do with a reactionary overcompensation to displays of male intimacy. And then our heroes spend the rest of the issue writhing around with wooden tentacle creatures who ultimately penetrate each other's orifices before committing mass suicide while Superman and Batman look on openly weeping I take it back please punch each other again I was much too young to realize that the whole thing was a thinly veiled slash fiction but between the two risible team-up books in one month I decided Superman didn't work as a partner to other heroes most Superman comics I tried as a kid were crummy dull and dated so I figured his talent pool infested other characters when intermingled actually I take that back because the story in number 290 also looks familiar and damn This one also featured giant worms and wooden monsters. What was the deal, Minch. Speaking of dark confessions, I've come to realize that my sudden boom in buying new comics was likely related to my mother dating and eventually marrying a scumbag who at least offered a boost to the family economy for a time. Sometime this year, I bought the Fireside collection Captain America Sentinel Liberty Trade. That was a high dollar purchase for us back then. I bring it up again because this month marked my major plunge into Cap comic collecting as I bought two new appearances, both from the local 7-Eleven. The first was Captain America number 280, where he battled Marvel's serial killing scarecrow in a story by Jane Demetrious, Mike Zeck, and John Beatty. While I recognize this scarecrow was the ripoff, especially in light of his moving from fantastical Iron Man stories to gritty urban vigilante cap stories, I think one of the reasons I never got into DC's version is because I always found this contortionist killer creepier. I immediately fell in love with his creative team, and they made this the first comic I followed consistently, month after month. Although a case could be made for my spotty Brave and the Bold patronage. Lightening things up considerably, my first time buying one of those Justice League of America comics with the iconic headshots border reacting to the events in the center image wasn't actually a JLA comic. It was Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew number 14, bought at the flea market, co-starring Just a Lot of Animals. For those unfamiliar, Scott Shaw produced a lovingly rendered funny animal parody of mostly original super critters, and this issue featured super friends scribe E. Nelson Bridwell helping import the JLA in for reform for a crisis on earth sea they fought an android with their combined powers called amazoo and the stand in for john stewart had a big woolly afro and went by green lambskin that was a level of humor it was a kid's comic after all still shaw's art was surprisingly detailed and dynamic so that even if he was drawing Wonder Wabbit, it was a damn sight more iconic and aesthetically appealing than slogging through don hex art on the real thing ironically given i completely forgot he cameoed in the book it's entirely possible that my first exposure to a variation on john jones was actually the martian ant eater rather than the manhunter i was already a bit old for captain carrot but to be perfectly honest another reason why i may not have stuck with the book was that i just really preferred just a lot of animals to the zoo crew i didn't see just league of america on the stands much growing up and when i did i tended to be put off by the lousy art snuck under the great george Perez covers but if the book had looked as good as shaw's things might have played out differently Just you and I, just you and I, sharing our love together, and I know in time, and I know in time, we'll build the dreams we treasure. My timeline for reading Dazzler number 26 would be off because I got it out of a three-pack, not as its own purchase at its time of release. Even though I surely bought the pack for another title, I can't immediately recall which it would be while the Dazzler lingered in my collection and thoughts for some time. It had a striking rare Jojusko pen and ink illustrated cover that captured both the allure of the heroine, such as it was, and the odd strain of violence in a story about a disco singing crime fighter on roller skates that anticipated an odd favored cartoon of my youth, Gem, of the Holograms. Most of the story is dominated by Dazzler's sister, a mutant with an acid touch. She accidentally uses it to kill a hobo who attempted to rape her in an alleyway prompting Dazzler to go in the land with her sister rather than leave her to face a manslaughter charge. I'm pretty sure the attractive young brunette would do her own skating away scot-free in the death of an anonymous derelict in Reagan's America, but we'll go with it for drama's sake. There's an undressing scene that serves no purpose beyond titillation, and then the sister murders a cat for scratching her. Now would be a good time to mention that in both cases, there's a panel lingering on the corpses left in the sister's wake, flat on their backs, appendages askew. Dazzler has meanwhile gone deep incognito in a tube top and micro skirt with a curly black wig clearly portraying a street walker not unlike jamie lee curtis's character from trading places as she crashes with her sister in a flop house liable to have rooms to rent by the hour remember dazzler is a wealthy touring performer and a role model aiding and abetting a fugitive as an accessory after the fact quick check and why yes this amoral abel ferrera murder fest is somehow approved by the spinsters at the comic code authority my only explanation is the art is by Frank Springer and Vince Coletta in peak vinny mode pages so soft focus and drab as to drain every ounce of implied menace and exploitation teasing out of Danny Fingeroth's script As an aside, my uncle made a rare visit to the States in 1983, back when that would have mattered to me. We went to a comic booth at the flea market together, and he bought himself a copy of Doctor Strange number 58. It was one of the lead-ins to his temporary annihilation of vampires in the Marvel Universe. It had an ominous cover with Strange standing before flames with someone's immolated hands waving from inside. I never read it myself, though. I also don't think I've ever read Omega Men number one, and yet I have a story. In grade school, I took advantage of a program for underprivileged kids where I got a limited time subscription to Boys Life and a chance to to go to some sort of summer camp type thing for a week or so maybe just a weekend there were no three-legged races or telekinetic aliens rigging boxing matches and nobody was murdered by a hermaphrodite that i know of i barely remember anything beyond sleeping in a double-decker bunk in a cabin with a screen door the counselor was a nice enough younger fellow who happened to have an omega Men promotional postcard pinned to a corkboard in the cabin deprived of anything comic book related for an indeterminate period of time i of course obsessed over it the counselor bet us on a hike that we would see a deer and i took him up on it with the postcard as the stakes sure enough he walked us to a fenced-in area with a deer and i belly ached at the jip Finally, on our last day, he gave in and I left with the postcard. I held on to it for several years, marveling at the intriguing Keith Giffen, Mike DiCarlo cover and wondering just who were these characters and what was their deal. I had additional exposure through their pinup ads in DC Sampler, entries in Who's Who, and I've even read a few issues. I still cannot tell you what the deal with the Omega Man is, but I know whatever it is couldn't be half as good as what I imagined it to be on Lazy Summer Afternoons before I lost that postcard. (laughs) The first of the new Teen Titans giveaway comics for the President's Drug Awareness Campaign featuring the Just Say No letter from Nancy Reagan came out this month. Those bona fides weren't enough to secure the use of Robin from an exclusive arrangement with a commercial licensor, though, despite figuring heavily into the story. So he had to be crudely redrawn as a made-up new character called the Protector. Possibly the explicit appearance of rolled marijuana cigarettes in full frame and the scene of dudes snorting coke off the floor of a high school boy's bathroom didn't help. I had my own x men super team that I made up out of my He-Man-sized action figures. And since most of the good super team names were taken, I just pluralized and plagiarized the protectors for myself. I was aggrieved when Malibu used the name for their revival line of mostly centaur publications, Golden Age heroes who had fallen into the public domain, though it still compelled me to buy their early issues. Anyway, all this is to say that I don't have much to say about the Titans issue, because despite the Marv Wolfman script, it had dull Ross Andrew Jogiela art and way too much of the story focus on a random junkie or the protector instead of the team. Also, I had to buy this public service message giveaway in a thrift store makeshift three-pack at a later date. Another aside, I pulled Obnoxio the Clown versus the X-Men out of a quarter bin in 1989. You aren't missing anything. I did the exact same thing with Pacific Comics' Star Slayer number 6, and enjoyed that one enough to fish out the John Ostrander Lennon Saul continuation at First Comics, though so it was the backup feature that eventually won my heart. More on that in a few years. It took me a few more months, but Uncanny X-Men number 168 would mark another. Ongoing fixation of mine. I can't explain why this was the first regular issue of X Men that I decided to buy, since I already was exposed to them through friends' copies, and I think their appearance on spider-man and his amazing friends i could maybe blame being raised by women because this was likely the girliest issue ever produced i'd never seen art like paul smith's before so lovely clean and delicate chris claremont's story was all about a teenage girl whining about school and her mentor taking place in dorm rooms dance studios and other centers of estrogen there was even a page in the back devoted to unused fan designed outfits in kitty's closet you'd think I was a friend of dorothy if kitty pride hadn't ended up being my first fanboy crush she was my four-color girl Girlfriend until I outgrew her. Then got grossed out when she started sexing up Pete Wisdom. She's only 15, as of 40 years ago. It wasn't all soap opera breather issue though. As Kitty put on her best Ellen Ripley look of determination while fighting an infestation of dog-sized shiar spider creatures with laser vision, with timely assists from Colossus and her pet dragon Lockheed. I still have my original copy, which of course is missing its cover, first pages, and the paper is about as all burned as Kitty's hair. I also have the X-Men Classic reprint and a better condition original copy and I think a trade collection with that story in it. I'd totally buy one of those $4 facsimile editions if Marvel randomly offered it. The final Captain America purchase of the month was Marvel Team-Up number 128, which had me at the photo cover. To this day, I love old-school Fumetti, the precursor to cosplay. I'm fairly certain that's Joe Jusko as Cap, and it may be Bill Sienkiewicz as Spidey jacking around on a roof in poorly reproduced pictures featuring an article in the shooting inside. Funny thing, though, is that the story was plenty good enough to not need any gimmicks. Once again, J.M. DeMatteis wrote the tale and if he couldn't be joined by Mike Zack, no worthier replacement could be found than Cary Gamble. This was the ultimate point for on-model artists who still brought dazzling individual flair. Before the age of the auteur artiste expanded the horizons of the medium, but were buzzkills for the official handbook-style uniformity that geeks relish. This story wasn't all that memorable since Vermin was just a furry lizard, but it was enjoyable and a feast for the eyes. At least there was time for love as Cat fought off the lusty temptation of S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Gail Runciter while his girlfriend Bernie waited at home, and Peter parker made time with an adrian barbeau stand-in named mia this issue also fueled a growing pro marvel bias batman was of inconsistent quality solo better teamed up superman was of consistently low quality worse teamed up and had a nader with batman meanwhile spider-man and cap owned individually or as a pair make mine marvel turn to take a ride across the. final aside before we get to the mail as i mentioned in earlier episodes comic reader resume started out his blog post that then had a short-lived youtube video adaptation in my first testing the waters for podcasting in the years not only between converting that audio to actual podcasts but between exhausting the inventory material and finally committing to producing new episodes rob kelly started his mountain comics podcast about books he read during his family's summer trips to a cabin in the Poconos. Given that both shows are about inventory nostalgia from roughly the same time period, it's only natural that there'd be some similarities. However, one particular one I want to own up to is my use of period music on the show, which didn't really get started until the recent revival. Whether it's just a natural association or if I was unconsciously imitating Rob, we both operate off the premise of featuring songs from the same time period as the comics we cover were coming out. Besides the tip of the hat in acknowledgement, I also wanted to offer an additional rationale. I have a lifelong love of music, but my exposure wasn't particularly diverse in the early 80s. The songs featured on this show for the most part were selected not just by when they came out, but by whether I remember hearing them in that time period. For instance, I've found myself really embracing the song Africa by Toto, which has gotten a lot of attention in recent years, from think pieces on colonialism to its pitch-perfect usage in the first season of Stranger Things. However, I don't think I was consciously aware of the song until nearly a decade after its release, and I didn't have any interest in it for yet another decade or more thereafter. Since I was listening mostly to oldies country and only the most accessible pop in this time period that's what you'll hear reflected on the show for now also I've got a music show called One Song Each where my friends dig deep into our thoughts and memories on a given tune I don't want to be repetitive and I don't want to waste a song with significance to me like Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf on bumpers for a 15 minute solo show about comic books I know I heard Turn On Your Heartlight in 1983 because I specifically remember hearing it playing at the upstairs flea market food court where I was reading my fresh copy of Secret Wars number 3 it was already familiar by then, and I believe I knew about it being inspired by the movie E.T. The Extraterrestrial, which I saw theatrically and had the book and record set besides. E.T. was a big deal in my childhood that almost entirely fell by the wayside as I yawned through its belated home video release around 1989, and I don't see myself ever devoting a segment of one song each to Neil Diamond, so it makes more sense to nod at it briefly here instead. Alright, now the mail. We were promoted on social media by Adriano, Between the Pages, Coffee and Comics, Collected Edition, Comics in the Golden Age, debash Derek. William Crab, Doc Strange, Dr. genealogist Firestorm fan, History of Comics on Film, Paul Hicks, Iowa's George's Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, Jesse Torres, King Dinosaur, The Liquid Awesome, Odell Abner Dracula, Old Desert Hymnal, Pat Sampson, aka Cristados, Reggie Reggie, Rico R. V., Ryan Daly, Scott, Scott Rowland, Serious Wars of Beyond Podcast, Ciscoid, Slangword Scott, Agent of G I R L, Superbound, Tom Beach, and Doug Zoisha. Scott Rowland wrote, Love this series, Frank. Jesse Farrell wrote, Are these comics from the first month you began reading comics? Not so much. Uh, as I mentioned in the zero and first episodes of the podcast, those were the books that I generally remember reading first, comic-wise. The core of Comic Reader Resume, though, is going to be about when I started collecting comics on a regular basis. Kurt Spencer hopes you will draw Sergeant Rock, wrote, I know and read and enjoyed at least four of those, meaning the books we covered last episode. I think the Timo titles currently live in Two Reed Mountain. Finally, Dr. Ange wrote, I'm one of those huge fans of Blade Runner, dissecting all the film versions and loving the comic for its muddy art, a perfect reflection of the story. Funny you mentioned that B&B, my first Ragman story. B&B, meaning Brave and the Bold, and DCCP, meaning DC Comics Presents, were my gateway to the extended dcu bc comics universe i should have to tell you that at this point what struck me in that story a line i still remember 35 years later batman tells ragman life is a grim joke you either laugh at it or cry unheard man for a glum Gus like batman to tell someone to lighten up you know ragman is dour i use that one at work now and then always good to hear these flashbacks yeah that's a funny line because uh, my girlfriend's from mexico and there's a saying i don't know the exact wording but it's something along the lines of you either laugh or you cry so maybe batman picked that up uh, Uh, in the Spanish side of town?